Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Folks, have you been watching the news? The war in Ukraine continues on. We've got uh, countries like Finland wanting to join NATO. We've got all the mess with Korea, North Korea, now shooting missiles, rattling the saber. I just heard that China is building a naval base in Cambodia. What a mess. Now, again, being a historian you got to look back and say, what are we getting ourselves into? I found it interesting that just recently Joe Biden was forced basically to walk back a false claim of his, that Washington has a military commitment to defend Taiwan in the event of invasion, most likely by China. Now, Biden answered affirmatively to a question about defending Taiwan during a joint press conference with Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio in Tokyo. Asked if he'd be willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan, Biden replied, yes, that's the commitment we made, citing the Taiwan Act. Now, folks, Taiwan is a sovereign state governed under a free and democratic system. China falsely claims it is a province and regularly threatens violence to bring about reunification. Taiwan has never been governed by a regime based in Beijing in its history. Now, the United States does not recognize Taiwan as a state, a concession to China granted by former President Jimmy Carter. The Taiwan Act allows Washington to establish relations with Taipei, the capital of Taiwan, separately from Beijing and allows the United States to provide Taiwan with arms of a defensive character. But it does not make a military commitment to defend Taiwan's independence. We can supply them arms, but we never said that we'd come in and fight on their side. No military treaty exists between Taiwan and America. Now, the White House soon issued a statement to the media, reassuring the world once again that Biden's remarks did not create a new military commitment for America. Now, as the president said, our policy has not changed. He reiterated our one-China policy and our commitment to peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. 
He also reiterated our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with the military means to defend itself, according to one official. Now, one China is a phrase used to mean several different policies. In the United States, it's used to mean the policy of not recognizing Taiwan as a sovereign state and maintaining diplomatic relations with communist China. China used the term one China principle to mean that Taiwan is a province of China, which is a far broader interpretation than America's. Now, Taiwan uses the term one China to mean that it, the Republic of China, is the only legitimate Chinese state in the world and the Communist People Republic of China in Beijing is not. Now, this is not the first time that Biden has seemingly fabricated a military commitment to defend Taiwan. Just last November, Biden was forced to clarify his comments after he said that Taiwan was independent from China. He said, we're not encouraging independence, repeatedly saying that nothing would happen on the issue of Taiwan. In October, the White House also walked back his talk then on Taiwan after he said that the United States would act to defend Taiwan if China invaded. Yes, we have a commitment to do that, he said, in a remark clearly identi- nearly identical to the recent one. Now, White House Press Secretary at the time, Jen Psaki, reassured reporters that Biden did not mean to signal a change in policy. She said, there has been no shift. The president was not announcing any change in our policy, nor has he made a decision to change our policy. There is no change in our policy. Now, this brings to the forefront the big question I have. Can the U.S. win a two-front war with Russia and China at the same time? Folks, we've been here before. We had to fight a war in Europe and the Pacific during World War II, and it damn near did us in. Are we capable of doing it now? Now, what I did is I did a little research and found a, a great article by a fellow by the name of James DePane, D-I-P-A-N-E. He's a policy analyst, and uh, basically he's a member of the Young Leaders Program at the Heritage Foundation. And he asked this very question, can the U.S. win a two-front war with Russia and China? Now, China and Russia spend a significant portion of their economic output on their defense budgets with the purpose of challenging American military superiority. Now, folks, this is a concern, particularly when the U.S. needs to respond to a conflict without jeopardizing the posture of U.S. forces in other regions throughout the world. It will take time for the military to reach the level of strength required to deter and potentially fight on multiple fronts. We're just not geared up for it. Now, the current war in Ukraine and Russia's threatening actions towards NATO countries, coupled with a rising China in Asia, highlights a strategic pickle for the United States. The need to be able to deter or potentially fight two major adversaries in two very different regions of the world at the same time. Now, while the U.S. is unlikely to face two significant competitors at the same time, the possibility isn't zero. Like I say, 
we've been in this situation before in World War II. At that time, we decided to tackle Europe first, which gave Japan plenty of time to dig in on all those islands and made it twice as tough to win the conflict in the Pacific because we were recommitting our resources to Europe. Now, the current situation in Ukraine with Russian President Vladimir Putin launching missiles, landing close to Poland, and Chinese President Xi Jinping's ideological commitments to bring Taiwan into China provides an excellent opportunity for an opportunist nation to attempt a hostile act while the rest of the world's distracted. The U.S. is a global power with interests and responsibilities throughout the world. It must be capable of protecting Americans abroad, allies, and the freedom to use international sea, air, space, and cyberspace. This is no easy task, and the U.S. military today is not positioned to take it on. Let's face it, folks, it's too small and too old to fight on numerous fronts. Forced drawdowns since the end of the Cold War and 20 years of fighting in the Middle East have left the U.S. military a shell of its former self. This should worry everybody, especially because China and Russia spend a significant portion of their money on their defense budgets with the purpose of challenging the American military's superiority. Now, I know what you're saying. We have the strongest military in the world. Yes, we do. But the question is, it's strong, but can it fight in two separate places at the same time? Now, the Chinese government is rapidly expanding its military forces. Perhaps the most visible example of this is its shipbuilding program. At the end of 2020, the size of China's navy was approximately 360 ships. Compare that to the U.S. Navy fleet of 297. China's military forces must be modernized by 2035, according to President Xi Jinping. By 2049, he claims, they should be a world-class military power capable of fighting and winning wars. China's breakthroughs in its hard power capabilities are likely to lead to a significant shift in the global balance of military power. As for Russia, well, you can see what they've got. Its military capabilities are on display on the world stage. The U.S. military has an overall advantage over the Russian military, but Russia has select advantages over the U.S. when it comes to certain capabilities. For example, the U.S. Army has approximately 6,000 tanks. Russia has 12,000. Russian tactical nuclear capabilities outnumber U.S. tactical nuclear capabilities by 10 to 1. And one cannot forget about the threat that Iran and North Korea also pose to U.S. national security with their missile arsenals and nuclear programs. And God only knows what Afghanistan's going to do with all the stuff we left them. It is vital for the U.S. to be able to project strength globally to provide reassurance for its allies and deter its adversaries. Now, while the quality of the U.S. military force is currently unrivaled, they are the best in the world, its size is at a historic low, and this limits its ability to respond to multiple threats. It simply does not have enough forces. For example... If the United States were to engage Russia in a direct confrontation, 
it will be forced to deploy military equipment and personnel from all over the world to the Eastern European Front. By doing so, the U.S. would be forced to draw forces from other regions of the world, such as the West Pacific, where our presence is critical in deterring China. Now, the Heritage Foundation's annual assessment of the U.S. military power, the 2022 Index of U.S. Military Strength, assesses that the U.S. military is only moderately capable of securing its vital national security interests and would struggle greatly if called upon to deal with more than one competitor at a time. Low levels of capacity are particularly concerning because numbers really matter in war. The index estimates that a joint force capable of dealing with multiple fronts simultaneously would need to consist of an army having 50 brigade combat teams. Now, a brigade is 4,000 men. We'd need 50 of those compared to our current number of 31. The Navy having, a, having at least 400 ships compared to 297 vessels it currently has. Now, since President Ronald Reagan's military buildup to deter the Soviets what would, in what would be the final years of the Cold War, the overall trend in numbers has clearly been consistently towards a smaller force. And folks, this isn't unusual. The very first thing that our government did following the American Revolution was to disband the Continental Army. Armies are expensive. And that's the first thing they did is they did away with the Army. And we saw this time and again. At the end of World War I, at the end of the Civil War, they draw the military down simply because it costs a lot to have one, okay? Now, besides force size, some of the military's equipment is outdated, and many of its platforms entered service more than 30 years ago. Now, the services, like the Army and the Navy, are aging faster than they are modernizing. As a result, it'll be easier for major competitors to reach technological equality with the U.S. military. Now, the good news is that there appears to be bipartisan acknowledgement of the need to project power on two fronts. It's difficult and it's expensive, but it's also essential. And I believe that we're entering a period where, where that is what will be demanded of the United States and this generation of Americans, according to Kurt Campbell, the White House Indo-Pacific Policy Coordinator. Now, but it remains to be seen whether Congress and the Biden administration address the need to field a military force sufficiently sized to address a two-front war. The defense budget must be sufficient to modernize and expand the force, but it's going to take time for the military to reach the level of strength required to deter and potentially fight on multiple fronts. Now, in keeping with this theme, I found another great article on The Hill, thehill.com, by Leonard Hotchberg. He's a senior fellow with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Now, while President Biden seeks to renegotiate the Iran nuclear deal, Hamas, an Iranian terrorist ally, continues to fight a war on Israel, an American ally. Even as some progressives in the Democratic Party argue for sacrificing Israel on their altar of political correctness, foreign policy experts recognize that the United States must defend its allies to remain credible. 
an attempt to appease Iran in nuclear negotiations in exchange for restraining Hamas would serve Iran's long-term strategy, which aims to dominate the territory from the Tigris-Euphrates Valley through Syria, Lebanon, and Gaza. Now, Halford John McEnder, in his Democratic Ideals and Reality, wrote in 1919, wrote this book, Democratic Ideals and Reality, emphasized the importance of the Holy Land to Great Britain for the control of the Suez Canal. Today, McKinder's geostrategic nightmare appears to be becoming a reality. Three autocratic regimes, China, Russia, and Iran, in coordination with North Korea and others, exercise considerable influence over the liberal democratic regimes of Europe, India, and the Far East. As part of its Belt and Road Initiative, China is tying Eurasia together economically, culturally, and militarily. Look at the shortages we have right now in dealing with China. The territorial extent of this threat extends from the Baltic and the Black Seas in the west to the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, East China Sea, and the Bering Strait. Russia continues to threaten Ukraine, aiming to consolidate its conquest of Crimea. When Ukraine surrendered its nuclear arms, the U.S. guaranteed Ukrainian territory integrity in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. That's right. When the Soviet Union fell, there were Russian missiles in the Ukraine. We stepped in and said, we'll disarm you, we'll take those things out of there and disassemble them, and then we will come and defend you, Ukraine, if you ever are threatened again. This is in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. Russia has shown the worthlessness of such guarantees. Meanwhile, Russia also threatens the NATO member Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. A successful invasion of a NATO member would be disastrous for U.S. credibility. Now, China has repudiated the one-country-two-systems principle under which Hong Kong retained its independence. And Chinese leader Xi Jinping has declared that Taiwan will be incorporated into China by force if necessary. So there's your two-front conflict, folks. China is building a capacity to invade or blockade Taiwan, threatening U.S. reliance on Taiwan for advanced electronics, semiconductors, and as a port to contain Chinese ambitions in the Pacific. In the East China Sea, China has claimed the Japanese Senhaku Islands, also in the South China Sea. China has built islands to assert sovereignty over key shipping lanes. And China now threatens all its maritime neighbors and has begun invasions of land-based neighbors, including Bhutan and India. And like I say, just this morning they talked about China building a new naval base in Cambodia. Now, rogue autocratic regimes are a growing threat. Iran sponsors Houthi rebels in Yemen, stokes Shiite discontent in the Gulf states and Iraq, and dominates Lebanon and Syria through Hezbollah, and also threatens shipping through the Gulf of Hormuz. North Korea poses a conventional threat to South Korea and its nuclear program 
aims to target the U.S. The Shanghai Corporation Organization, led by China and seconded by Russian, Russia is an alliance that ties together many of the autocratic powers. For the first time in a generation, the United States faces an autocratic peer adversary in China. China's military expenditures have been rising on an exponential curve, while NATO defensive expenditures are flat. Fighting and winning wars in the backyards of our adversaries will require us to fight where they are strongest and we're weakest. At the height of the Cold War, the United States claimed it could fight two major wars and one minor war. Gradually, that military capability has been degraded, relative to the capability of our adversaries. Now, one key indicator of the loss of military capability is the size of the U.S. naval fleet, as I said earlier. During the Reagan administration, the United States sought to maintain a 600-ship navy. In the years since, the size of of the navy has shrunk dramatically. According to Seth Cropsey, Today, the U.S. Navy has 101 ships deployed around the world, yet the entire fleet is only 297 vessels strong. There are not enough ships to meet the challenges off China's coast, let alone deter aggression across multiple Eurasian flashpoints. In the near future, the U.S. will have no carrier deployed as part of the 7th Fleet in the Asian Pacific region, despite China's stated intention of invading Taiwan. And bear in mind, it's not just the military ships, folks. We also have to have supply ships that can supply those military ships. Now, in assessing the danger that the U.S. faces, national security experts must consider the likelihood of a coordinated action by our adversaries. What if the U.S. and its allies were confronted with simultaneously forefront war waged against Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, and for good measure, the North Koreans attacking South Korea and leveraging their nuclear deterrent while Iranians closed the Strait of Hormuz. Such attacks likely would be combined with cyber attacks on financial and physical infrastructure in the U.S. Does the U.S. have the military capacity to respond to such simultaneous challenges? Are we prepared to use nuclear weapons to defend our allies and support our treaty commitments? If hard choices must be made, which of these conflicts would the U.S. prioritize? Like I said in World War II, we put Japan on hold and went after Hitler first. If we are to avoid a multi-front war, the United States must be ready to fight and win conventional conflicts in several places simultaneously and we must invest in strengthening our allies' ability to defend themselves. For far too long, American national security analysts have ignored the geopolitics of what we see today. Authoritarian powers have a strong history of finding common cause and coordinating their actions. We had Germany, Italy, and Japan forming the Axis powers in World War II. Autocrats have always had the luxury and the curse of making decisions without legislative debate. If the U.S. fails to deter coordinated action by the axis of autocracy, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, these powers surely will find common cause and a multi-front war will result.
Think about it, folks. That's all I have for today. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. If you'd like to help me continue with these shows, it's as simple as clicking the support link where you access this podcast. Thanks, and be sure to remember your history.